everyone. Welcome back to Christ of the Cure. Today we are going to be talking about Methodism. And before we begin, it is worth stating, as I will state in most every episode of this series, that I am talking about denominations that are not my tradition. Therefore, check my work. Forgive me if I accidentally misrepresent your tradition. I am trying to use your sources. And for things like this, like Methodism, I am going to rely on things like the United Methodists, which I know there are going to be disagreements with the United Methodists from other Methodists, but that is kind of like my basis for some of this material because I have to kind of pick somewhere to to launch off from, and the United Methodists are one of the largest bodies, and so that is where I'm going with that. However, because our denomination series is so broad, hopefully you'll find that there's not too much to disagree with, but again, if you are listening to this series, check my work. Forgive me if I accidentally misrepresent. I am, again, doing my best to use your sources to describe your tradition. And one more thing before we jump in today, Christ of the Cure is subscriber-supported. And so if you find Christ of the Cure materials and approach and things of that nature worthy of support, consider becoming a Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Christ of the Cure. We are trying to hit our ideal goal for support to go ahead and renew for season five. I think we're in season four right now. It's been a weird year, guys. Anyway, so consider becoming a patron. And by the end of this series, as a patron, you will have an EPUB of all of these notes, a little Kindle copy, if you will, or you can upload it to whatever e-reader you want. And so you'll have this as reference. And that's one of the perks of being a patron. You get some exclusive notes. You get some exclusive courses, early content, things of that nature. So there are some perks, but ultimately it's about whether or not you feel led to and you believe that Christ is the cure is worth supporting. So let's go ahead and jump into Methodism. We're going to begin with our historical summary, and we're going to follow the same outline that we did before. So you should know what to expect. Let's go ahead and get into the historical summary. Methodism has its foundation in Anglicanism, and in the 17th century, a group of students at Oxford would be dubbed the Methodist for their intentionality in prayer, fasting, Bible reading, and charity. Now, two of them uh, are well-known it's John and Charles Wesley, and they would be instrumental in the continuance and organization of what would later become Methodism. Both were ordained in the Church of England and operated within the Anglican Church for a long time. During his life, John Wesley met a group of Moravians, I believe I pronounced that correctly, and Moravians were those who organized around the pre-Reformation reformer John Huss, who was martyred in the 15th century. This group would have an impact on John Wesley, so we'll just summarize quickly here. The group organized in 1457 and uh, highly stressed living according to the teaching of Jesus, holiness, and not necessarily doctrine or held beliefs. And they would come to America during the colonial period and would have an impact on Wesley. And they continue to this day. So they have a pretty long tradition. Now, John was particularly impacted by their piety and inspired by them, but he never became a part of their group. Instead, he remained Anglican. In this inspiration, he followed George Whitfield, another Anglican, in his open-air preaching. Um, if you don't know the story about George Whitfield and John Wesley and their friendship, uh, it's interesting. But ultimately, as time went on, John Wesley would have societies organized that would implement uh, different organization of itinerant ministry, meetings, training leaders, preachers, having conferences. And the emphasis was really about the lay person and the lay movement uh, and training them up. And this was all done within the confines of Anglicanism. But this wouldn't last as Wesley's conference moved it 
in a track of legal separation from Anglicanism. In the American colonies, the Methodists grew significantly, and in 1773, the first annual Methodist conference was held in Philadelphia, and by the end of the American Revolution, membership had grown exponentially. The Bishop of London's refusal to appoint bishops in America is what led Wesley to fill this role of appointing ministers in America, with Thomas Coke being the first superintendent of this conference. Additionally, in 1784, the Articles of Religion from the Church of England were adopted for the Methodists, but adapted by John Wesley to include allegiance to the United States, and some other modifications were done in light of Wesley's rejection of Calvinism. And I think I talk about that later. The final break from the Church of England occurred sometime soon after. Now, the Methodist history goes well beyond this, uh, so this is just, again, highlighting some things. Uh, and it grew significantly and had a radical impact on numerous issues, some leading to various splits or divergences for different reasons. Over the years, divisions in Methodism have occurred because of differing perspectives on revivalism especially, and adopting or shifting according to modern thought. Regarding that latter point, there have been divisions on the subject of biblical inerrancy and various liberal ideologies, which would lead to more conservative Methodists forming new groups and move away from the mainline Methodist bodies. The most notable of the mainline body is the United Methodist Church, or the UMC, which I may be calling it UMC or United Methodist Church throughout this. Olson notes that there are technically other Methodists that, quote, may have sprung up much later, but their historical theological identity is closer to that of the original Methodism than to any other tradition. Many such denominations deserve their own separate category called holiness churches that will be explained in the introduction to that section of this handbook, and that's the handbook of denominations. Most of the denominations identify as Methodists or began as a breakoff from the so-called mainline Methodist Church, now the United Methodist Church, under one of its names, end quote. So you can kind of see where the divergence section of this episode is going to go. Now, at the same time, there are many conservative Methodists within these mainline organizations attempting to reform, keep it on track, and things of that nature. So trying to gauge how liberal or conservative the Methodist Church is proves difficult because on the ground you'll have a variety. You can have a very conservative parish or a very liberal parish while on the top floor some things may not be officially defined but it can lean one way or the other um, over the years. So the consensus seems to be that it's down the middle within the United States and it's varying across local churches within the UMC. So most of us, at least that I've talked to and myself assume that the UMC is liberal while really the UMC hasn't nailed down official declarations that would make it be placed in that category, I guess. And the parishes can differ quite dramatically from one another in terms of how conservative leaning or liberal leaning they are currently within the UMC. There are debates still on the subject of the LGBTQ issues, but even then, on that point, the UMC is theologically conservative by stating on their website that they maintain that homosexuality is incompatible with Christian teaching, while also stating that members are split on the subject. And you can see that on the official website of the UMC. And that article is, What's the Church's Position on Homosexuality? from umc.org. Um, and this article goes on to state that a general conference will actually be held in 2024, so right around the corner, 
and it will raise up the issues and address them. But it concludes that, quote, it seems unlikely that the current policies regarding human sexuality will be substantially altered, end quote. So the bottom line is that at least on that particular issue, you could say that the UMC is conservative, while you may have a parish that is more liberal, meaning that you kind of have to take it at a case-by-case basis. That said, the UMC does ordain women. Uh, Their history on that subject has kind of flip-flopped over the years, but you could say that on that end of the spectrum, they are more liberal. Well, at least relative to Christendom as a whole, as the Methodists have generally ordained women, um, even like conservative branch-offs of the UMC will often ordain women. And I'll throw in that disclaimer here, that's as far as I can tell, so you need to double-check with whatever... Uh, Methodist group you're looking at. Let's go into the sources of authority for Methodism. Methodists affirm the Bible as the primary source for the Christian faith and life. In the Methodist Confessions, they note that the Bible reveals the Word of God so far as it is necessary for salvation, and they have an emphasis on the Bible as a book containing all things necessary for salvation, not necessarily informative on matters of science, history, etc. In addition to the Bible, Methodists hold up tradition, namely the Apostles' Creed, which is used regularly in the Wesleyan tradition, particularly in Wesleyan worship. When Wesley adopted the Anglican Articles of Religion, he omitted the Nicene and Athanasian Creed from that document. However, the tradition generally recognizes their value and may choose to include them. So the Wesleyan source of authority includes scripture, tradition, reason, and experience, but tradition is also found in Wesley's 25 articles of religion. Generally, the works of Wesley's are placed in high regard as outlining the distinctives of the tradition, especially on the Wesleyan Arminian convictions and justification with a stress on sanctification. The primary works are Wesley's standard sermons and explanatory notes upon the New Testament, Last, there are the general rules of the Methodist Church, which are concerned with practical living as faithful disciples. And so these documents are uh, those documents that are shared across the tradition, while other Methodist documents would be formed in the midst of splits or plants. And so that's worth pointing out. There are various wings of the Methodist movement, such as the Methodist Episcopal Church, or MEC, the Free Methodists, the Wesleyan Methodists, the Wesleyan Church, the Christian Methodist Episcopal Church, and so Forth. But like I said, because of the nature of the series, I'm going to be using the UMC or United Methodist Church as the basis for some of the articulations going forward. So let's talk about polity or church government. The Methodist Church is generally Episcopalian, meaning that it incorporates bishops into the structure, but it's also a modified Episcopalian structure that can get kind of complex, in my opinion, anyway. There are some congregational Methodists, but this is the exception, not the rule. Most fall into a hierarchical structure. Here, we're going to, again, look at the UMC as the basis and summarize its Episcopalian structure with the caveat that it does not represent Methodism as a whole. Now, the UMC structure is similar to the U.S. government with three branches, the executive, legislative, and judicial, and a central document is at the forefront, and that is the Book of Discipline. The Book of Discipline serves as the constitution that churches within the UMC are expected to follow and use as a standard, especially in regards to discipline. The Episcopy, or group of bishops, act as the executive branch of the UMC with elected bishops who oversee a region for a four-year period. The legislative branch, if you will, are the conferences, and the general conference is the primary lawmaking body of the UMC. And following the meeting of the general council, a revised book of discipline is produced to incorporate new laws. There are other conferences, such as the jurisdictional conference or the annual conferences, 
and they are of smaller scale and deal with issues around local churches. The judicial branch is the judicial council, and it checks the work of the conferences to ensure that they are following the Book of Discipline appropriately. And I will have links on the landing page that you can go and read up on this stuff. Now, the language of conferences can throw you, but the annual conference is not just a yearly meeting, but also a regional body that covers an area and is made up of local churches who form a district within that conference. Now, each district has a bishop who oversees the churches in their district, thus the Episcopalian. And from there, you have the local church, which is led by a pastor who is subject to their respective bishop and the book of discipline. Now, let's talk about sacraments or ordinances within Methodism. Now, within Methodism, there are two sacraments. You have baptism and communion. These are the only two official sacraments, but Methodists sometimes practice what are called sacraments in other traditions, such as confirmation or absolution. But let's talk about baptism. So currently within the UMC, there's actually a discussion about reviving the historic position of Methodism on baptism. The UMC describes this as well. They they describe that Wesley's position as being baptismal regeneration, wherein guilt of original sin is cleansed from the infant being baptized, and they are made an heir of the kingdom. The article I am looking at here, that is the United Methodist Understanding of Baptism, speaks about how there was a downplay of baptismal regeneration because of the emphasis on revival and individual decision-making, where the sacramental teaching of Wesley was downplayed or just outright ignored. Over time, tensions on the subject continued within the tradition, but in the 1960s, the United Methodist Hymnal restressed the sacramental or effectual nature of baptism as the initiation of divine grace and conveying regeneration, washing away original sin, and so on and so forth. In the 80s, this was furthered and solidified in the realigned historical trajectory. So basically, the UMC recognizes that this has been a point of back and forth in the Methodist tradition, but now it seems to be more settled in the historic position of Wesley, that is baptismal regeneration. Methodists hold that by baptism, individuals are initiated into the church and given new birth through water and the spirit. Methodists are paedo-baptists, that is, they baptize babies, linking baptism to circumcision and holding that the children of Christians ought to be baptized and, by extension, are members of the family and the church, yet not capable of everything involved in full membership. So pretty similar to the Anglican church. For infants, baptism is a means of prevenient grace. That is a grace that prepares the way for the child to receive faith later on. And they are expected to receive that faith and then have confirmation in some Methodist circles. Now, just like with baptism, there was a period when the traditional Methodist position on the Lord's Supper or Eucharist was lost and Methodism fell into a pure memorialism. But this didn't last nearly as long as the issue of baptism. On the Lord's Supper, Methodists hold that Christ is really present in the elements of the Supper, and they agree with the Anglican Church that there is a mystery to Christ's real presence somewhere along the line of Calvin's position and a denial of transubstantiation or the changing of the substance of the bread and wine into the literal body and blood of Christ, which, by the way, if you haven't listened to the introduction episodes, you're going to want to listen to those because I outlined these positions there to minimize uh, repetition. So in the supper, grace is conveyed to the Christian and it helps shape the Christians into Christ's image. It is true and real spiritual nourishment while the true substance of the elements is still food. John Nevin in the mystical presence says, quote, it, that is the Eucharist, is not simply an occasion by which the soul of the believer may be 
excited to pious feelings and desires, but it embodies the actual presence of the grace it represents in its own constitution. And this grace is not simply the promise of God on which we are encouraged to rely, but the very life of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. We communicate in the Lord's Supper not only with the divine promises merely, not with the thought of Christ only, not with the recollection simply of what he has done and suffered for us, not with the lively sense alone of his all-sufficient, all-glorious salvation, but with the living Savior himself in the fullness of his glorified person made present to us for the purpose by the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, And again, that is... um, John Nevin, the mystical presence, and he's explaining that the Eucharist is not just memorialism and is not just the believer getting um, emotionally tied into what is occurring in this memorial, but it is actually a means of conveying grace and strengthening the faith and pious desire in the believer. Now, this may seem like a weird sidebar, but it kind of threw me. Now, Methodists were pretty influential in the temperance movement. That is whenever... um, They were trying to abstain from alcohol. And so Thomas Welch was a Methodist who invented grape juice for Methodist communion. But Methodists today have found freedom to either use grape juice or wine, contrary to the the myth that they only use grape juice. I had no idea that a Methodist invented grape juice for that purpose. Um, I have to say, you know, I'm going to blame Methodists for the rest of my days for that disgusting beverage known as grape juice. No, I'm just playing. I know some of you weirdos like that stuff. I don't know how y'all drink it as a regular drink. It's just... Anyway, additionally, both leavened or unleavened bread may be used in the Methodist tradition. Now, communion in Methodism is encouraged weekly, but most congregations observe it at least once a month. Uh, So kind of similar to what you see in congregational churches. Further, communion is open, meaning that all who have been baptized can partake so long as there is not lingering or unrepentant sin. So you have that idea of an open communion or you have the closed table communion where uh, communion is limited to those who have been baptized in a particular church or tradition sometimes. Um, And, you know, you have that with some Presbyterians do that and some Baptists do that. Um, In most cases that I've seen it, it's been limited to those who are actually members of a congregation. Only members of a particular church can partake in communion. And it's a way to ensure that, you know, people who are actually baptized and in the faith are taking part of communion being administered by the leadership of that church. So if you didn't know about open communion and closed communion, you do now. Let's hop into the distinctives. The distinctives of Methodism consist of the reality that Methodists are Arminian. They follow very closely with Jacob Arminius's teachings. Uh, we talked about that in the past. So I'm not going to get into the weeds, but they're opposed to Calvinism. And this really goes back to John Wesley's history with uh, Whitfield, which is interesting. Um, Additionally, the Methodist quadrilateral is distinctive as Methodists will emphasize or balance scripture, tradition, reason, and experience. Methodist.org summarizes the quadrilateral as follows, quote, Methodists traditionally use a fourfold approach to learn about our Christian faith and apply it to contemporary issues and to our Christian practice. First, scripture. We seek to discover the word of God through reading the Bible. There are different understandings among Methodists about the Bible's authority in our lives, We need to use resources like different Bible translations and commentaries and Bible reading notes. Second tradition, this is the wisdom and creativity of Christians over time and across the world and includes inspirational material like hymns, songs, prayers, poetry, Christian art, and devotional books. There are also formally agreed teachings like the creeds and the contents of the catechism, the statements and reports from the Methodist Conference. Third, you have reason. We are called to love God with our minds as well as with our hearts. 
to the best of our ability, we need to think things through in light of reason. This means becoming aware of different points of view and using our own critical thinking to make sense of God's world. And then lastly, experience Methodism particularly stresses the importance of our own experience of God's grace working in our lives. We gain wisdom and maturity from life experience, especially when we pray and reflect about our story with other Christians, end quote. So a distinctive of Methodism is also found in the denomination's emphasis on holiness and faith in action, which could be kind of like the key mark emphasis for the denomination. Like Anglicanism, the Methodist denomination allows for diverse beliefs and experiences while holding to a tight core. UMC.org describes the following, quote, It is difficult to describe the United Methodist beliefs because of the diverse and inclusive nature of the church. As an international church, the United Methodist Church represents a wide range of backgrounds, experiences, and perspectives. And because personal experience is foundational to United Methodist theology, this often leads to differences in areas like scriptural interpretation and theological formation. The United Methodist Church seeks a commitment to unity while embracing diversity of beliefs and experiences. A visit to United Methodist Congregation in Washington will yield a much different experience than a visit to the United Methodist Congregation in the Democratic Republic of Congo. While these two congregations may display differences in practices and some beliefs, they will both profess a commitment to sharing God's love through Jesus Christ, end quote. So let's talk about emphasis. Now, as mentioned prior, the Methodists have a heavy emphasis on sanctification alongside justification. And so that's kind of the notable point of emphasis. They're, they're very known for faith in action. Uh, for Methodists, there is this general idea of heart and right affections being linked with faith and action. And this can be seen historically, honestly. The number of Methodist-founded organizations just abound. And you can see this especially, well, at least I notice especially because of my wife, um, the Methodist movement in terms of how it affected healthcare and hospital development, right? So anyway, while Methodists emphasize faith in action, there seems to be some debates about the relevance of Wesley's pursuit of Christian perfection or entire sanctification. There's a lot of debates within the tradition about what uh, Wesley's perfectionism actually entailed and whether or not he held it and all that stuff. But many have noted that the Methodists generally have moved away from the idea regardless. Um, while those who came out of Methodism, namely the holiness movement, strongly insist upon it. So in light of those debates, I've opted not to say that Wesleyan's perfectionism is the distinctive or emphasis, but instead just say that faith in action and holiness is an emphasis in Methodism, which it is worth pointing out that Wesley's entire sanctification or Christian perfectionism, if you even believe that he held to that, should not be regarded as perfectionism that is sometimes touted today, uh, which really is kind of rare, uh, but it's worth noting out that they're different and you should look into those differences before uh, you draw equivocation. So as it's been hinted a couple times now, we're going to talk about divergences in Methodism and we're going to focus on the holiness movement because we're not going to treat the holiness movement as its own class within the series, but a, a shoot off of Methodism because of how closely tied there. In fact, many in the holiness movement consider themselves Methodist still. So the holiness movement grew out of the American and British Methodist movements in the mid 19th century. This movement was, as the name can hint, concerned with Wesley's emphasis on sanctification and perfectionism, and those who led the holiness movement felt that Methodists became too cold or came to view Wesley's understanding of sanctification as an experience rather than a process. Within this movement, 
The entire sanctification was a second blessing where one would be filled with the Holy Spirit and perfected in love. This blessing was available to all who were truly converted, and the movement adopted the belief in healing via faith, but avoided being Pentecostal wholesale, and that some did not join the Pentecostal movement in 1906. The primary deviation, however, was on the Pentecostal movement's understanding of speaking in tongues, which was generally rejected by the holiness movement. And this is seen in the Church of Nazarene, which would come to change its name given the Pentecostal movement, with the original name being the Pentecostal Church of the Nazarene, and it would be changed to the Church of the Nazarene. Now, this holiness movement would pull Methodists from the Methodist ranks and would become a denomination, well, it's debated, uh, become a denomination in its own right. Uh, some debate whether or not they are Methodists, some debate whether or not they're their own. But regardless, because of its stress on holiness, the movement rejected many elements of the day-to-day -day concerning entertainment, fashion, consumption of alcohol, smoking, etc., um, and aside from speaking in tongues, they were charismatic with emotional manifestations during their meetings. And the movement should be distinct from Pentecostalism, but some modern holiness denominations did move into Pentecostal territory and vice versa. You kind of see overlaps there. Some of the key groups or organizations and churches from this movement are the Church of the Nazarene. The Salvation Army is an organization from the holiness movement. The Wesleyan Church, uh, which was a merging of Pilgrim Holiness Church and Wesleyan Methodist Church and so on. So I think that kind of wraps our section on Methodism. I'm sure there's a lot more that could have been said. I hope that you found it helpful and sufficient for this series and its goals. Next, we will talk about Lutheranism. I was trying to make the installments logical rather than chronological, so it began with Anglicanism, and then because Methodism came out of Anglicanism, we did them next. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's just going to get difficult at some point to, to stick with an organization uh, based off of logical or chronological, whatever. Alphabetical is probably the safest, but I dropped the ball. So next time we'll talk about Lutheranism. Don't forget to look at the website's landing page for this episode and pick up the links. There's there's a list of links uh, that I use and along with Roger Olson's Handbook of Denominations in the United States, which is an extremely solid resource if you're interested in the topic um, from more of a historical standpoint. I think I've mentioned that before. So God bless you all and have a wonderful, wonderful weekend.